On this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Allison Jackson. Dr. Jackson is a board-certified child abuse pediatrician serving as the division chief of the Child and Adolescent Protection Center of the Children's National Medical Center. She's also an associate professor of pediatrics at George Washington University. For over 19 years, she's been evaluating and treating children victimized by all forms of child maltreatment. And in addition to her medical responsibilities, she's providing physician leadership to the District of Columbia's multidisciplinary team on child abuse. She's the 2014 recipient of the Administration on Children, Youth, and Families Commissioner's Award and was the inaugural recipient of an endowed professorship by the Washington Children's Foundation in 2017. Her advocacy on behalf of victims of child abuse and neglect is reflected in her service on the D.C. Children's Justice Act Task Force, the D.C. Victims Assistance Network, and as the Ray Heffler Society's representative to the National Coalition of Child Abuse. It's my pleasure to have Dr. Jackson with us today to talk about the medical issues surrounding child abuse and what we should be doing as a society to protect some of our most vulnerable children. So one of the things that is quite interesting to me, Dr. Jackson, is looking at the FBI statistics. It seems as if the perpetrators are of abuse are getting younger, and we're hearing more younger about more younger victims. Do you think that that's a, that's a change in reporting, or do you think that there are some other trends that we should be watching for? Or am I wrong? I think that it's a combination of the two. I think for victims of sexual abuse or sexual assaults, there may be a component of increased reporting. You know, there's been a lot of public attention in in some ways to child sexual abuse. And so I think that there may be for children, for younger children, a tendency to report those maybe more, um, given that increased awareness. As far as the perpetrators seeming to get younger and younger, I would agree in my clinical experience, I think that I would say kind of anecdotally that that is our share, a shared experience with the stats. And I have to think that the internet is playing a role in that as young children have access to the internet in ways that other children of uh, different generations never had. And I think, unfortunately, the Internet has become a source of sex education, albeit inaccurate or inappropriate. And kids, you know, and these malleable developing brains see some images or, that are, you know, well beyond the time frame where they should be seeing them or, or hearing them or what they're seeing is completely inappropriate, but it's their experience, their first experience or exposure, then it creates a distorted view of their understanding about sex, their understanding about relationships, um, and how we should interact with one another. And You know, that's a very interesting comment that you made about the internet. I have uh, mentioned that, I believe, in one of my blogs and have certainly had conversations with parents about this, um, this sort of ubiquitous use of internet, the sort of images that we're seeing in pornography, and the 
you know, the, the fact that this is probably something that is more viewed by males in our society than females, but maybe changing the expectations of what intimacy looks like uh, for the worse. And my, my daughter, Miranda, wrote a book called 20 Things I Wish I Had Learned in Sex Ed. And she mentions this idea that some of the men that she had, you know, dated almost expected her to look like a, a porn star, <laughs> right? The shaving and the the sort of images that they're seeing. So it's fascinating. And I, I would love to talk, um, you know, with probably some, some people, PhD people who are looking at this sort of thing as well. So that's very interesting that you would say that. So from a medical perspective, can you describe the sort of experience that uh, a, a trauma victim would have if they are brought into your clinic um, with a claim of sexual assault? What should parents expect? What should caretakers and the victim, him or herself, expect as they're going through this process? I think it depends. Um, It depends on how soon after the incident occurred you're seeing a healthcare professional. Um, And I say that because we live in a CSI generation. We're all kind of familiar shows like that and the issue of evidence uh, often comes up and may be very relevant if we're seeing a patient very soon after on the order of days after an incident but often disclosure doesn't happen that quickly Um, these are not easy things for kids um, of any age to talk about and because the relationship of the perpetrator to the victim or presumed victim is usually not a stranger. Um, It makes it that much more difficult to tell. And so kind of the difficulty in disclosing can often lead to a delay in getting medical attention sooner rather than later. Having said that, what I would hope Um, any survivor would um, receive. And and what we seek to do in our office is to address both the emotional and psychological needs of the patient and non-offending caregiver and the medical needs. And so child abuse specialists, child abuse pediatricians practice in a variety variety of settings, um, which means that the response or um, kind of the team that is involved in the care of these patients may vary from place to place to some extent. But if I'm looking at it purely from what happens on the medical side of things, it should be in many ways no different than any other medical visit. There should be a history, um, which means that we should be asking um, the patient, why are you here? And questions around that. Of course, trying to be as open-ended in our questioning as we possibly can to allow the patient to share what they are able to share at that time. Now, we are not in the business of forcing disclosures of any child or young person. They have to be able to tell when they are ready, and that may not be the time that they're ready, or they may be ready to tell some of it, but not all of it. And that is okay, and they have to know that that is all right, that they can share whatever they feel comfortable sharing. 
And we should be responding to not only their verbal cues, but their body language as well. Um, in terms of how they are handling the encounter. Of course, getting other medical history is quite important because in some cases, these patients may have other medical needs that have not been addressed or um, could be exacerbated by the experiences that they, um, the traumatic experiences that they've had. Um, And so, um, you know, getting that kind of information as well is important. And then um, the medical exam is really should be a complete head to toe physical exam, which includes an exam of the genital and anal areas as well. Most um, folk who practice child abuse pediatrics, if the concern is for some sort of sexual victimization or physical abuse, will include um, documentation um, using photography um, of some kind or videography of some kind to, to document the exam, which allows for that provider to review if there's an area of question, to be able to anonymously, not with any patient demographic information, but to have a a colleague look at something that may be in question um, to get a second opinion without putting a patient through another exam with (laughs) another person. And then, you know, depending on the history, any symptoms the patient may have, what they've disclosed, there may be additional testing. So there may be testing for infection or pregnancy or those kinds of things to determine whether or not there are any other consequences of the abuse that they've described or the abuse that is suspected. So, you know, we use the history to guide our practice. Um, So what the patient shares or um, in the case of a, a child who is maybe pre-verbal or has limited verbal skills, use the history that is provided by the caregiver, um, any signs or symptoms that are, have been reported or observed, use those things to, to guide our assessment and, and what level of testing might be required. And then at the conclusion, it doesn't end there, it shouldn't end there. There needs to be kind of a closure to the visit and that closure should include getting the results of the exam. Of course, test results won't be available that quickly, but certainly whether or not there are any abnormalities in the exam or whether it's normal, which is usually the case, in fact. And that can, in fact, be very reassuring for a victim who may come in thinking that something is wrong with their body because of what happened or that they're somehow damaged physically because of what happened, when in fact they may be completely normal. And more often than not, they are completely normal on their physical exam. And, you know, knowing that for a survivor can go a very long way. Terrific. That's very helpful. So you you mentioned, you know, kind of this idea of not forcing the victim. I completely understand that. Question for you. Does anything change if the patient is an adolescent and are there any privacy concerns that come into play? I'm aware of HIPAA. Um, There's, you know, certainly uh, is part of VAWA. Uh, a, a mandate that, you know, you can't force someone to talk to the police and that sort of thing. So does anything differ if there's, a, for instance, a child of eight who comes in versus an adolescent of 15? 
I think the difference between the two, well, one will be the age of consent as it pertains to the age of consent to have sex in, in the jurisdiction. On average, that I think across states, most states are around 16, the age of 16 for that. But then there are also issues related to the care of adolescents. In our area, the age of 12, and a 12-year-old can receive care for sexually transmitted infections, pregnancy, mental health concerns, substance abuse concerns, things of that nature without a parent consenting to that because we know that for some adolescents, if the parents have to know, then they just won't get care. They just won't come and get treatment, which could have devastating consequences. And so to overcome that barrier, there are of legal accommodations that allow for young persons to to seek medical care for certain things related to that. And so, you know, how that fits within the scope of child abuse and and sexual assault is tricky (laughs) at best because we can view sexual victimization as a safety concern, much like we would suicidality or those kinds of concerns, a mental health issue, because sexual victimization and sexual assault is not, it's a crime of power and control in most instances, which is not quite the same as I had sex with my boyfriend and now I have a discharge or my stomach is hurting. It's a little bit different. Um, and so it, it makes it much more challenging in that sense. Um, and then, of course, if the perpetrator is disclosed to be a parent, a family member, or someone in a position of control, like a coach or a minister, then the child abuse laws are limit the confidentiality of the visit. That said, my practice, even with younger children, is to talk with them without their parent in the room. That is a more traditional approach, I think, with adolescents in general, um, because we know that the the level of modesty increases as kids get older um, and their experiences um, become much more private. And, you know, as I tell my patients, I'm your doctor, not your mother's doctor, and I'm here for you. But in doing that, it's important that they know what the limits of of confidentiality might be. And so for an adolescent who was sexually assaulted, but also may be sexually active in a consensual and and age-appropriate, with an age-appropriate relationship, then, you know, I can't have that conversation with the parent in the room. And so we have to just be mindful of those things and, and consider that in how we engage with a family, the patient, um, knowing that there are some things that I have to tell someone, um, and there are some things that can be maintained between the patient and the provider. So, Dr. Jackson, as part of that, you you mentioned this sort of consensual sexual relationship. And one of the things that, you know, we're starting to talk more as a society about in this adolescent age range and young young adult age range is intimate partner abuse. And so as we think about that, how can we support adolescents to develop not only healthy relationships, but an understanding of where the boundaries are 
in a healthy relationship so that we don't end up in situations where there is assault by coercion? I think we have to start before adolescence. I I think that the relationships that we model or that they observe in their homes, in their community, are teaching them well before they're ready for um, those kinds of relationships. And so while maybe in your home, and this is something that I might do with my own children, you know, they see how we are at home, but let's say we're out and we see, I don't know, I've seen some teenagers kind of rough playing, you know, outside of their high school. I use that as a teaching opportunity for my own children who are younger to say that is not how boys and girls should be interacting. You know, we are not fighting and pushing and shoving is not appropriate and that there's another way to disagree and use those opportunities when kids are young, even when you're just observing something that is unhealthy or a high risk kind of scenario, just set, let, setting the tone of what is what they should expect and what they deserve, how they deserve to be treated when they're younger. And then I think in doing that, it also creates a dynamic where a parent and child can dialogue freely in a safe way about things that maybe are less traditional, maybe not the upbringing that their grandparents had (laughs) about um, how you, the things you talk about with your parent, but better to learn these things at home with a value system that you, you support and promote than to learn it by from peers or the media or the internet or the music that may be promoting uh, things that are unhealthy. I think also it's important just to listen to kids without judgment. And that can be hard for parents, especially parents of teenagers, because developmentally teenagers think they know everything. That is a normal developmental thing. They're achieving kind of new milestones of of their thinking, critical thinking skills and all of that. And they're going to test it out and they're going to think that they know more than you. But to be able to have some sort of dialogue and to be able to listen to them without passing judgment, but maybe posing further follow-up questions. So why do you think that? Or what makes you think that? Or is that how you think, you know, let's say you have a loving couple in your family or something like that. Is is, do you think that's how they settle their disagreements Mm or, you know, that kind of thing? I mean, the truth of the matter is even the most loving couples disagree. It's not about having a perfect, you know, everything is not all passion and roses and chocolates. You know, there are disagreements. And the question is, how do couples resolve disagreements in a healthy way and to help them think about that and to know that they have value? Um, that you do not deserve to be mistreated, to be called names. Um, And if that is the case, then that is not a healthy relationship. So, you know, look, you've said some very interesting things here, and I can imagine that a parent listening to this is now wanting to know where's the guidebook, Where, where's my Dr. Jackson <laughs> to tell me what questions I'm supposed to ask. And I think... Uh, you know, that, that's a, that is a challenge in our society, especially since there's been such a generational shift in terms of what the expectations of parents and children are, um, certainly in the last 20 years, and certainly, as you mentioned, with the internet. You know, just parents are, in some cases, you know, minds are blown when they see what their children can actually see, and they feel ill-equipped to be able to really communicate with them effectively about this. 
what what advice do you have for parents? You said ask good questions, but in terms of you know finding those good questions, is should they go to their pediatrician? Or are there resources that they should look for that might help them to start the dialogue? I think going to the pediatrician is is so very important. And in doing that, the parents should partner with the pediatrician in the sense of saying, there is going to be a time when I am going to need to step out of the room because that's your doctor, not mine. And I want you to be able to talk to your doctor about things freely without being embarrassed because I'm in the room. And most pediatricians would probably appreciate that because if you kind of grow up with a, if your patient kind of grows up with you, it may be awkward to make that transition for some pediatricians. But I think it's important to, you know, it's okay. Because when we become adults, we don't necessarily go to the doctor with our loved one to speak on our behalf. And so to help them feel empowered about seeking their own health care, questions that they have is, is certainly of great value. There are, I think, some other resources. Uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has some great resources around Internet safety that parents and kids can can look at. There's a wonderful program called Stewards of Children, which is a child sexual abuse prevention program. And there are training programs that are trainings that might be offered by organizations in your community that you could participate in. And they also have some online resources. So if that is not um, something that you are able to do or not available where you, you know, where you live, they have some great resources on, you know, what we as parents can do to keep our children safe. What role do we play in doing that? Some schools have curricula around safe dating and there are health programs. And so, you know, as a parent, could you ask your your school, what are you all doing to teach in health class around healthy relationships? Um, uh, hopefully schools know, but some may not know. Um, and so there's some, uh, there's a safe dates curriculum that is an evidence-based curriculum uh, that schools can implement in their health classes to help teach kids about that. And, you know, a parent can certainly look on those websites and there might be some tips of things to say. I can't really say that I have it all down pat. Uh, some of this comes just from the experience of, of meeting families and, and kids and um, working through difficult situations um, and difficult encounters with them. There's no textbook still on parenting. <laughs> but, you know, certainly I think thinking ahead as opposed to thinking in the moment is a better approach. And so just like we do, we think about this more with infants, you know, before the baby's born, we're looking up things, you know, what what to expect and, you know, when do we introduce this food and, and all of those things. And so, you know, we should be just as eager to find information about, okay, my kid is 10 and they're going to be in middle school soon. And what should I expect with that? What kind of things should I be talking with them about? There are the American Academy of Pediatrics does have a, um, on their website, a link for resources 
um, and some anticipatory guidance for parents at each kind of developmental stage. And so um, there certainly are some resources there as well. But I think kind of anticipating what might be on the horizon is important uh, to do and just spending time with your children. And we live in, so, we're, we're so busy and we're pulled in so many different directions. And, you know, again, the physicality of being a parent of young children where because you have to be around them uh, because they can't do so much for themselves lends itself to that kind of interaction just by default. But as kids get older and they are able to do more than, for themselves and their interest is more outside of the home than inside the home, we have to create those opportunities that we're still together. And it's not just together for certain tasks, but just simply spending time together, you know, going to a movie, going out to eat, you know, one-on-one -on -one time, going to get your nails done, whatever it is with your child to continue to foster a relationship as they, they change and grow and um, have different needs and, and need you as a parent in different ways. Um, that is that is fantastic advice. I would like to ask you one major question before we go to the standard questions that I ask all of my guests. We are seeing is more talk about prevention programs, and I know that in the VAWA reauthorization, there is additional funding in place for children in in early education, even to start receiving some of this information and how to protect themselves and how to notice things, which is a, a great step forward. They also are talking about prevention programs for boys. Can you talk just a little bit, give your opinion about, you know, where we are with boys and what we can be doing to really support them in their growth and development to become healthy men? Well, I think what we have to first acknowledge is that sexual abuse doesn't just happen to females. So about one in four females and about one in six males may experience sexual victimization by the age of 18. So it's common um, and it's common regardless of gender. And so we have to first, you know, not make this a female only issue. Sexual abuse, sexual assault is common in, in males, females and transgendered young persons. And so in many ways, they are even more susceptible to poor consequences or outcomes as a result of sexual assault. And so I think that's one area that we need to focus on and, and, and remember and kind of destigmatize the experience of sexual victimization. And then the subject of consent. What is consent? What does that mean? What does it look like? certainly needs to be taught. And I think historically, I mean, I grew up in a time where the lesson was don't talk to strangers, which is really completely flawed. <laughs> Not that I'm encouraging kids to talk to every stranger, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is the perpetrators are usually someone known to the family. It could be in the family or very close to the family. And so that's a, a message that misses the majority of perpetrators. So you know, that, that's, that's certainly part of it. And then, you know, we've put so much burden on children around protecting themselves, but the question becomes, what do we do as parents to decrease the opportunity for abuse? What do, or parents or administrators of youth serving organizations for that matter, 
And then what do we do to ensure that all kids understand what consent is? The permission slip, so to speak. What does saying no mean? And that means that you have to talk to kids about sex. <laughs> um, and, and that may be awkward for a lot of parents. And knowing the statistics, we also have to remember that means that a lot of parents are survivors. And they may be survivors who didn't tell, survivors who told and were not believed, mm -hmm. survivors who told and were kind of ousted from the family or look, you know, made to be, oh, they lie and, you know, they're a bad kid or they it was all their fault. And so how that affects their parenting and their ability to explain these things to their children certainly has to be considered. So we have to support parents getting help if that's something in their history that they never got help for. So it's it's multifactorial. There's not any one fix. I think that's the take-home point of my answer is that there's so many layers to this. And so it does, it, it's, it's multifactorial and the burden is not on any one thing. So, Dr. Jackson, um, I'd like to ask you four questions. Um, what one thing would you like victims or caretakers of victims of abuse or assault to know? I would say the, there is help. You are not alone, and it is not your fault. Um, what one thing would you encourage caretakers um, of victims of abuse or assault to do? To get help. This is not the crazy uncle in the attic. We don't keep this in the family. There is no shame in it. Yes, people experience shame, but there really is no shame in being a victim of sexual violence. Help is available, and I think people always do better when they are able to avail themselves of the help that is there. Please name one thing that we as a society should be doing to stop childhood abuse or and assault teaching about consent and, and stopping the victim blaming, destigmatizing mental health. Um, I like to call it brain health, actually. Holding perpetrators accountable more consistently and supporting parents. Last question. What is the most important thing we should be doing right now to help support victims? Listening to them in a non-judgmental way and responding in an affirming way, I think, is invaluable to a survivor. People who have experienced sexual victimization almost always do better when they are believed and supported. And the outcomes are often devastating or tragic when a victim is not believed. And that is not the same as somebody going to jail. That is... How do the people who are supposed to love and care for me respond to my disclosure? Thanks for listening to this episode of Life After Abuse. Until next time, do one thing to support female abuse victims. Remember, they are counting on us. If you want to find out more about Life After Abuse or would like to be interviewed, please visit the website lifeafterabusepod.com. That's L-I-F-E-A-F-T-E-R-A-B-U-S-E-P-O-D.com. Take care and be well.